But we're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. So in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. She had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. She sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in an open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. In the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah at the, front for, at the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out, fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and told and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us. They came out against us in the field and we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at the servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done 
displeased the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So I want to tell you a story of two very different men this morning. One was rich and the other one was quite poor. The rich man had amassed this wealth that went beyond any other man before him. His flocks and his herds went on for miles. In fact, this man had so much livestock, he could not count all the head of cattle and sheep on his land. He was beyond blessed. But the second man, um, he was quite the humble man. In fact, he was dirt poor. And unlike the rich man, all this man had to his name was one little lamb. The man, he, he loved this lamb. It had grown up with his children. At night, he would hold it in its arms until he fell asleep. It was far from a barn animal. The, the lamb was more like a daughter to the man. One day, a traveler came to town. He, he, he must have been someone special because the, the rich man had planned this, this massive feast to, to welcome this newcomer, this new guest. But as generous as the, the gesture was, the rich man was, was also quite the Scrooge. He wasn't about to give up one of his own sheep for the party, so the rich man went down the street, stole the poor man's lamb instead. He caught that little lamb, slaughtered it, roasted it, and never had a second thought. Let's say you're the jury hearing this case for the first time. What do you think should be done to the rich man? It's kind of a messed up story, right? One guy has it all, everything he could ever want, and yet somehow he decides to take from the one who has nothing. And the hard reality is, this is the story of King David. As I said to date, we, we know David was a good man. He was a man after God's own heart. That's how he went down in history. And just weeks ago, we learned that David was finally made king. With God's favor, he was the the richest man in the land, from from a no-name shepherd boy to the most powerful position in the kingdom. But one day, David sees this beautiful spectacle, the, the outline of a woman up on a rooftop. And as we just read, he sets all of that aside, and he makes this conscious decision to take another one's wife to be his own. And it's important for us to understand this. This wasn't just any rich man stealing from the poor, right? This was the commander in chief. This was the king, the most powerful name in the land, stealing from one of his best soldiers who was fighting his fight. The military calls it stealing the affection from a brother officer's wife. The Bible calls it adultery. Just after our passage, right, the the, the prophet Nathan, he comes to David with almost that exact story verbatim about the rich and the poor man. That's how chapter 12 begins. And at first, when David hears this tale, he's furious. He cannot believe the the messed up scandal of this story. Look at what he says about this in in 12.5. He says to Nathan, as the Lord lives, whoever this man is, he deserves to die. He should restore that lamb fourfold. He had no pity. But Nathan, he, he had set David right up for this moment and he, he looks at David, pins him right between the eyes and he says, do you not see this, David? You are the man. You're that man. How, how does such a good king fall so hard? 
this morning, I want to talk about two biblical concepts that I think are, are essential for us understanding uh, our walk with the Lord and understanding our faith. And yet these two words come with so much cultural baggage that I think we often cringe when we hear either of them. You guess what they are? The two words that I would say summarize this story really well are sin and repentance. Sin and repentance. You know, sin is an interesting phenomenon, right? No follower of Christ that, that I know wakes up and, and one day just thinks, you know, today's the day I'm going to fall off the cliff. This is it. No one really wakes up wondering, ah, how can I ruin my relationship today? I wonder how I can ruin, destroy myself. One of the first things that I've, I notice every time I, I open up to this story is, David's already on a slippery slope, though, long before he sees that rooftop. The first slip that David made was, was not him calling Bathsheba to the quarters. It was his pride. Hear me out. From the very first uh, verse of this lesson, something's wrong. Something's very wrong. Up until this point, David's been on the front lines of every battle in his time with his men. He was the, the warrior of warriors, right? Not even Goliath could, could back him down. But for some reason, David's comfortably hanging out, not in the trenches of war, but in the comforts of his home. Look again at 11 verse 1. It says, in the springtime, our passage says, that the time when kings typically go out to battle, wink, wink, nod, nod, David sat comfortably back home in his couch in Jerusalem. You know, if you were looking for the first time of trouble, there it is, a, a man's pride begins to rise. David's on top, right? He's, he's struck gold. He's the man of the hour, like every hour. The city's been parading in the streets for, for months now with this man's name. They've anointed him king. Proverbs 16, 18 says it like this. It says, pride goes before destruction. We know this. A haughty spirit before the fall. You know, if we were to do an autopsy of a, a leader, I think the first misstep long before David gazed on that roof was pride. I would guarantee it. That David had let this fester within him, right? He was above it all. He was too guarded to, to be in the trenches of his men. He had arrived. But if the first misstep is, is nuanced, and maybe I had to convince you on that one, the, the second one is obvious. And that is that, the first fruits of sin always begin with a fleshly desire. You know, you name the sin, I'll show you how the first fruits of it began with a human desire. It's interesting how this drama nearly parallels Adam and Eve, right? In both stories, here's how the temptation begins. It starts with the eyes. Look at this in, in verse two, right? David sees Bathsheba up on this roof. He immediately notes her beauty and the desire overcomes him. Eve's in the, the garden of Eden. Temptation begins the exact same way. Look at this, Genesis 3, 6. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good, she took of it and ate it. It's crazy how lazy the enemy is really, right? Same exact tactic, same trap, like, like a fisherman with a worm. This is how the enemy works. Eve sees the fruit. She sees that it's good to, despite the fact that God called it bad and by her own desire, her own pride, she takes it. David sees this beauty before him. He sees that it's good even though it's, it's not his. 
And by that same desire, he falls too. See, our sin, I think it often begins with this, this subtle pride. I'm, I'm my own master. I'm, I'm my own Lord. I, I can make my own decisions. I'm above the fray. I deserve this. Look at what comes next. James 1.15 says it really clearly. It says, then that desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings death. You know, you might not have had an affair, or, or maybe you have. But in any case, we, we got to hear this. We are all in good company on this one. All of us, the Bible says, if you've committed lust in your heart, you are thereby guilty of breaking the same commandment. Ecclesiastes 7.20 makes it even more clear. It says, there is not a righteous one on earth who does good and never sins. And yet I think the paradox of this is that from the earliest of age, right, this idea of sin in our minds, we've been conditioned to believe it's far less pervasive than we deep down we know it is. We hate this word. Right? Because it, it reveals something in us that we weren't meant to have. So we, we learn to downplay it, to, to ignore it, to pretend it's not there, to, to sweep it under the rug. And here's the cycle. First, in our pride, we misstep. And then in our fleshly desire, we fall. And then when we fall, there enters full-blown sin. And then at some point, we look at our shattered selves in the mirror and we're overcome with shame of the epic fail. It's not just physical indiscretion, right? This is the pattern with all sin. You lose your patience with your loved one and, and your desire to be right, you say that thing you know you shouldn't have said and even though you're back on top now and it feels great that you won the game, your shadow self is now before you. Or maybe you, you promised yourself you, you wouldn't play office politics this week. But your boss came in bashing that coworker and you had that great story to contribute to the gossip and uh, it felt good to be one with the gang. But deep down as you got in your car and wrapped up your day, you knew you were wrong. And I could go on, right? But you get the point. We all know this pattern well. And typically the first reaction when we finally come face to face with that reality before us from the beginning of time, it's the same response. We hide. We gotta cover this up. First in our pride, we stumble. Then in our desire, we fall. Then in our fall comes shame. Then in our shame, we hide. Adam and Eve, they had taken that fruit, right? And for the first time, they realized that, oh, geez, we're naked. Enters shame into the world, disgrace and, and sorrow. And, and what do they do? What's their first reaction? Genesis 3, 8, it says, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. This is what sin does, right? I mean, David, David knew how hard he had fallen. Bathsheba is pregnant. Another man's wife is with his child. But instead of owning the mistake, what, what does he do? He begins taking every measure possible to smooth it over. And like Adam and Eve, who were foolishly thinking they could hide from God in the garden, right? David begins to make this plan of his own concealment and deceit. He does three things. First, he sends Uriah back home, right? And he, he does this with these hopes that maybe Uriah will join his wife in matrimony, if you get my drift. That way, everyone will think the child is his. 
But look at this backfire. Look at how this flies in David's face in verse 11. Uriah says, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in tents. My Lord Joab, that's the commander of the army, and the, the servants are camping in an open field in war. And you want me to go to my house to eat and drink and be merry? As I live, I won't do it. I mean, it's, it's interesting. There's no commentary offered in this entire chapter. And yet the, the contrast between these two men almost speaks for itself. Right? David's cheating on one of his best soldiers, his most faithful, his top 30 from the comfort of his palace. Meanwhile, Uriah won't even think of enjoying a moment until all the men are back home safe. But David's desperate, right? So he doubles down. He thinks, well, how, how can I make this happen? What do I need to do? This is another timeless trait, right? I'll fix the problem. I know how I'll fix it. We'll throw alcohol into the mix. And he gets Uriah inebriated and liquored up, sends him back home. Same sign though, Uriah won't go in. See, the comparison between these two men tells us everything we need to know about the pattern of sin. Because just when you thought it was over, just when you thought the worst had come, then comes the absolute tragedy of David's life. He writes a letter to the commanding officer, right, to Joab. He seals it, gives it to Uriah, and tells Uriah to deliver his own death note to the rank and file. Look at this, look at what he wrote in verse 15. Set Uriah at the forefront of the hardest fighting, then draw back from him that he might be struck down and die. And this is the David we've come to love. I mean, this is a man after God's own heart, right? And yet the, the rich man takes the poor man's lamb and not only takes the poor man's lamb, but then he, he kills the man just to make sure he's not found out. It seems to me, here's the harsh reality of sin. You know, sin never sits quietly in a vacuum. One sin never sits in isolation. It always festers. It always builds. First, David breaks the 10th commandment. Then David breaks the, the seventh commandment. And now he's broken the sixth. You shall not covet. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. But when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when full bore, brings death. I'm reminded of a message that John Piper gave years and years ago, all the way back, I think, when I was in high school. And of all the sermons that I've heard over the years, for some reason, this one's really stuck with me. It wasn't long after September 11th, and Piper was talking about the, the thousands of people on that day who were screaming and running for their lives from what they knew was death and destruction. And he asked this question, he said, why is it that when we see that obvious danger in front of us, there almost seems to be something innate in us that knows to flee. And yet in our sin, despite knowing the same reality, the same death and destruction, we linger. Why with all the warning signs flashing, do we allow our pride and our desires to lure us anyway? See, I, I think we all ask this question from time to time, right? In fact, the apostle Paul asked it in, in Romans seven nineteen. He said it like this. He said, I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. What do we do with that? That's a hard reality. 
Reminds me of the classic story about a, a railroad switchyard in St. Louis. You know, thousands of miles of, of rail, there's just one tiny piece of metal in that switchyard that, that directs a train either to San Francisco or, or all the way to New York. And at the flip of that switch, the entire train goes one of two directions. You pull the wrong lever, you're on a long journey in the wrong way. And that's sin, right? Just a small switch, and we find ourselves moving in the wrong direction. Look at how this chapter ends, 1226. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. When the morning was over, David sent, brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And David's thinking, I pulled it off. No one knows. The secret remains that the wedding bells chime in. But look at this. Look at what happens next. David forgot one massive detail. But the thing that David has done, verse 27 tells us, displeased the Lord. Here's the thing about sin. You can run from it, right? You can, you can sweep it under the rug. You can look the other way. And yet it's still before us. And after Nathan tells this parable of this, this rich man stealing from the poor and David indicts the man with this anger, he looks at him and says, David, you are the man. It was such a brilliant moment. You know, had Nathan played it any other way, David would have killed him, right? David was in a murderous mood. He, he, off with your head. But the king has already expressed his outrage. He's already sentenced himself. And now he looks in the mirror, that is David's words. And he realizes, oh, geez, that's me. It's a troubling moment, right? I'll give you an Easter preview. In the book of Acts, Apostle Peter's given this wild sermon right out the gate, right after Jesus' ascension. And he's telling these crowds they had crucified the wrong man. He said, do you realize you killed the savior of the world? Peter said, we saw it with our own eyes. He's, he's risen. Look at what happens. Look at how this plays out in Acts 2. It says, when they heard this, when they were faced and confronted with their sin, you are the man, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest, well, what do we do? Is that not the timeless question of our sin? I mean, all of us, I'm sure right now we can think of some way in the last week where we go, oh yeah, that was me. What do I do? What now? We, we look in the mirror and we hate that we failed. What's the solution? Look at this. And Peter said to them, here's what you do. He said, repent. Repent and be baptized, all of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin." Enough about sin, that's, that's the heavy word. Let's, let's talk about repentance. Again, I think the concept of that word has gotten a bad rap. It makes us squirm a bit. I don't know about you, but when I, when I hear that word repent, I, I think of somebody pounding the pulpit and screaming and yelling, right? Or I think of 2000, remember that year when the world was coming to an end, the millennium, remember that? People are holding the signs that say, repent. Kind of comes with this crazy connotation. And yet that word, right, if we really apply it biblically, the, the biblical reality of that word, it's not a harsh word. It's not a crazy word. It's not a punitive word. It's a word of grace. It's a word that releases us, right, that, that gives us freedom from the, the my bads in our life. 
See, sin, that, that's the dirty word. That's the word that, that leads to death. That's the word that enslaves. That's the word that destroys. And David's stuck. He knows it. He's been falling in this hole that seems to go on forever and ever, one ledge after another after another, until finally Nathan comes to the, the king and faces him with himself and says, do you see the mirror? And look at what David says for the first time finally, chapter 12, 13, out loud. I've sinned against the Lord. Finally, for the first time, I've sinned against the Lord. And notice this two things. First, he names what he's done. Then he names who he did it against. I messed up. I screwed up. Why is that so hard for us to say? You know, David didn't just sin against Uriah or his soldiers or Bathsheba. He had sinned against Almighty God. If you want the full version of all we have to do is turn back to Psalm 51. I kind of gave you a bait and switch. Because that was the very prayer, the, the prayer of confession that we prayed today. The very prayer David prayed in that moment. Psalm 51 starts out like this. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet had went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. It's that clear. And this was the prayer. David said, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. You know, David's fall was catastrophic, right? The, the consequences, you can read them right there in chapter 12. But they went on. His house was ravaged with, with more sin. The things he did in private, his sons did in public. The, there was sword put against his family. His own child, the one born of Bathsheba, dies. And the reality is, again, the, the sin that we commit on this side of eternity, it creates weight. We know this. There is measure to it. It leads to consequences that we can't control that, that are now before us. That's why we flee. And yet when we stumble, and we will, when we stumble, it's in our repentance that we find hope again. See, to repent means to change direction, to, to turn back to the Lord, to realize even in the mud and mire of yesterday, God still loves you right where you are. But it's only when we turn from that path of destruction, when we, when we quit looking back on the plow and, and turn now to face the one who gave us grace that we find our chains are gone. The fact is, no, most of us, we don't need a Nathan to tell us you're the man or you're the woman, right? We, we all know I'm, I'm the one that fell short. The question then remains, well, then how do we move on from that, that fail? How do we rid ourselves of this overbearing guilt and shame? You return to God's promises again. You confess again your, your need for a savior. Look at this. This is the best part of this, this tragic, broken, destructive story. Look at this in chapter 12, verse 13. Nathan tells David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Just think of all the work that David has done to this point to smooth it over, right? To, to cover this over, to, to pretend that life was good, that it was all in vain. And yet the moment he does his about face by the prophet Nathan's own declaration, it's gone. 
2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old has gone away, the new has come. And I think the fact is when, when we've, we've all found ourselves in, in that place where suddenly we realize, oh, geez, I've, I've done it again. Here's the encouragement. Don't run from it. Don't let it fester what happened in your past. Don't allow the enemy to have a heyday with it. Turn around and give it to the only one who can declare you whole again. Romans 8.34 says, who is in a position to condemn? Only Christ. Christ died for us. Christ rose for us. Christ reigns in power for us, interceding for us. Sin and repentance. It's a timely word, right, as we step into Holy Week. I think the question for us is, which one are you going to chase after? And when you fall, do you realize the ladder is still for you? I want to invite the band to come up. Let's take some extended time and just worship. Whatever burden's on your heart, give it to the Lord, knowing that he loves you right where you are. Let's pray. So God, we, we see it, Lord, and maybe that's the first step is seeing it, seeing ourselves in the mirror and going, oh, geez, yep, that was me. God, would you keep us mindful that you can take a man who, who committed adultery and murder and you can, you can restore him. You can bring healing and restoration. God, so we pray, Lord, that you would both protect us from the evils and the sins of this world as David fell, but also, God, we pray that you'd give us that heart. Lord, a heart that would seek after you, a heart that would, would face the fact that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. But God, we pray, don't leave us in the, the muck and the mire, but Lord, lift us out. Give us encouragement and grace to not only realize our own forgiveness, but to forgive those who have sinned against us too. Lord, lead us to live a, a life of freedom God, that we would chase after you. It's in Jesus' name we make our prayer and all God's people said.